Tonight I'd like to talk to you about why we call this insight meditation, and the Pali word is vipassana. So I'll go into a little bit about practicing meditation um, for calm on the one hand, we call that samatha meditation, and then how samatha meditation, developing of presence and calm, can be used for developing insight, especially liberating insight. And specifically, I'll be looking at what's also called the three characteristics of experience. And I'll be a bit later into the talk. There's a phrase that's uh, repeated when the Buddha describes his awakening or other people's awakening, when they come out of their patterns of suffering. And the Pali phrase is, yata bhutam pajanati. And pajanati means to know and yata bhutam means the nature or the true nature of things. And so this phrase yata bhutam pajanati means one who knows, one who sees clearly the nature of things as they are. That's really the intent of this practice and why we do it so intensively is one part of it is to actually give ourselves some temporary relief and uh, teach ourselves how to calm down, how to be more present, how to kind of take the chaos out of our minds and our hearts and our bodies. And if we just did that during this week, it would be a week well spent. We can also go further than just calming down here and now. And we begin to actually study and learn the way our minds work, the way our hearts work, the way our bodies work from within the direct experience. And then from that, learn to navigate ourselves and our world much better. And that's the developing of insight. It goes a little bit further than just developing calm. I first came to this practice when I was in college. <clears throat> I was a physicist. And so there's this uh, tremendous amount of training to um, know how to quest for the truth accurately and how to be careful of your belief systems because you might interpret data through an old belief and therefore come up with something that reinforces an old belief versus being able to look with fresh eyes at how the world works. And from that, maybe actually come up with a better way of understanding the way things work. One really great example of this, uh, sort of a hero in the scientific community, was Galileo. <clears throat> Probably nobody here knows who invented the first telescope. Is anybody? Oh, your foot went up. I thought, I was like, oh my God, you do? <laughs> no. Wow. I've, I've seen the name many times, but I don't, I can't remember it. So it was a great discovery to develop the first telescope. But what Galileo did is he pointed the telescope in a, a, a phenomenal direction. So not just looking at a tree far away. You know, you could see that tree up close, you could see it from far away. That would be kind of interesting. But Galileo pointed it up into the heavens. And he saw things very, very clearly and very quickly that no human eye had ever seen before. And it completely changed our position in the known universe. So slightly enhancing the vision improved and opened up an understanding of what is, what is the true nature of our planet and of the heavens above. And that opened up a new paradigm, a new understanding. And it was fought. This new understanding was not embraced. Uh, the Catholic Church was quite harsh on Galileo. But the truth could not be put back in the bottle because now many people had telescopes and many people could see the truth for what it was. He got to see the moons orbiting Jupiter and he got to see that Venus actually has phases like the moon. And those two things, just, just that simple information began to actually change um, the underlying paradigm that everything went around the Earth. And now most of us are quite used to that understanding or not troubled by it. In fact, you can actually draw a lot of um, awe and excitement over modern astronomy if you're, if you're into that. What they're discovering is amazing, and I don't mind at all that we're not the center of it all. What actually is, is so fascinating. I'm happy to be along for the ride. So it's hard to imagine that there was a time when that information was really difficult to take in because at least in our modern culture, it's fairly well embraced. There's still some holdouts. 
but they just have to clench their teeth into an old belief system because the actual evidence uh, is so overwhelming to a new understanding of how the universe actually works. What is the yata bhutam of the actual universe? Seems to be expanding from a big bang a long time ago. And every time people ask new questions from new angles, they come up with this underlying truth about the, which, the nature of the cosmos. And so it, it feels very reliable. So this practice is meant to give us that orientation to the nature of life. And especially where we create our own suffering and misery, this is a great place to wake up. So we're all looking for happiness. We're all trying to establish some degree of happiness for ourselves and the people we care for. And the paradigm that we're working from, the common paradigm has some flaws in it. And so we can only establish so much happiness if we go about things with an old way of thinking. What we want to do with this practice is actually see things clearly and from that develop a new understanding of how to go about creating happiness. And that's where this beautiful practice of insight meditation comes along. Gloria Steinem <clears throat> said, uh, the, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the reasons that the truth, if it's a new truth, one of the reasons it will piss you off is that you might have to change in relationship to it. It might destabilize your, uh, your old way of thinking. But then after you get over being pissed off, then you get to experience the freedom. So Sally and Adrian talked some about uh, the establishment of samatha meditation. And that's a bulk of what we're doing on this retreat is just again, welcoming the heart and the mind to be a little more collected, be present and be steady in its presence. And so that's a beautiful whole cultivation to stabilize one's attention, to be in flow with the present time experiences and not distracted by too many things, not jumbled. As uh, Adrian was talking last night, there's these five hindrances that make that very difficult. And yet we learn to work with them, and over time they subside. Um, and that's the development of what we call samadhi, or this uh, wholeness of attention, developing a wholeness of attention. So that's one part. And it's a lifelong practice, and it keeps getting more and more stable, your ability to be stable in more and more chaotic uh, circumstances improves over time. So it's a beautiful quality to develop, this stability of attention. And then um, mindfulness meditation, for me, the word that I go to um, has been this increasing sense of intimacy. I think when I first started practice, Mindfulness was more about accuracy, like am I seeing things clearly and am I seeing what's actually happening? But I, I was very much sort of in an observer mode. And as I've developed my practice, um, I'm touched more by experience. It's not about the scientific observation, which was may, maybe where I started as a scientist. But I just have a more intimate contact with the flow of experience. So I become intimate with what it feels like to breathe become intimate with the sound of crickets. I become intimate with uh, pains in my body. And I've learned to develop some strength to be intimate with difficult experiences, emotional experiences, mental experiences. So if the samatha practices develop the stability of attention, and mindfulness is this intimacy, coming in greater intimacy with what you're experiencing, from that alone, again, there's a great benefit. So when you eat your, uh, your lunch, you actually taste it versus being spaced out. Um, actually feeling the wind on your skin, uh, smelling flowers when you walk by them, actually experiencing life as you go through it. Um, being mindful, being um, concentrated, having your attention well-developed. These are great things and you'll steer through life much better the development of vipassana <clears throat> is when we start to actually then study our experience and study it with certain questions in mind. So mindfulness creates the intimacy 
And Vipassana is where we start to use that intimacy to learn uh, with much greater insight, much greater um, fidelity towards the experience, what's actually happening. And this is why it's called insight meditation, because the intimacy gets you at the door of the insight, but then spending time intimate with a certain experience, suddenly you understand it much better. And that sort of understanding that grows, we call insight. So one, one insight that happened on my first retreat, um, I was maybe 21 at the time, and I was in this big argument with my parents about um, my own independence, and they were paying for college, but I kind of wanted to do my life my way, and just it was an old dynamic that we were in, and so we were arguing a lot with each other. A lot of love, but a lot of arguments. And on a nine-day retreat, I spent the first four days arguing with them in my head, <laughs> and they said, what about your breath? I was like, yeah, yeah, the breath is kind of interesting, but I really want to win this argument with my mom. Because <laughs> I know right when the treat's over, I'm going to get there. And I thought I'd use these, uh, these nine days to really polish my argument. So if she says this, I'll say that. If she says this, I'll say that. Now, what was the first thing again? Right, right, right. If she says this, I'm going to say that. Like, okay, ah, I know, I'm gonna, better than that, I'm going to say this. And I just would do this, and it's like, come back to your breath. And I was like, oh, yeah, breath. Back to the argument. I was like, this is great. Nine days to really, like, I'm going to win it. I'm going to walk out of here, and I'm going to, like, blast them, and I'm going to win. And it was fatiguing, and I couldn't do it, and the hindrances came in, and they got in the way of my arguments. And I was like, oh, sleepiness. You're getting in the way of my arguments, let alone my breath. Then about four days in, one of the teachers said, um, you're just talking to the whole room. So I was so shocked that I got called out. He's just talking, 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 saying, you know, good advice, and said something like, you know, the thoughts of your parents are not your parents. Then he went on. But I was dumbstruck. I mean, I was just like, is this someone that like slapped me across the face? And I was like, oh my God, I've just spent four days, if not decades, trying to win inside my brain. But it's just thought. And that began a whole cascade of awakenings that my thoughts, I don't have to win against the thoughts. I just don't have to believe them. So much of my energy had been put into organizing and winning and cleaning up and categorizing and dealing with my inside world as if it were realities. But about the fourth day, I was, I was ready to hear it. I was ready to hear it. And someone had told me that on day two. I was like, whatever, I'm going to win this argument. But something I was ripened, there was enough intimacy, enough stability, that getting that insight, my thoughts are not realities. It's real that I'm thinking, but what the thought's actually generating is not an actual world I have to solve. It's just thought. Then I spent many days just watching my mind construct palaces, but they were just thought or prisons, or worries, or fantasies, like everything is creating is just thought bubbles. And it kind of maps onto reality, but a lot of it doesn't. What a relief to have learned that early on so that I actually know the difference between thought and reality. That's one example of insight. Insight ripening through stability of intimacy. Time and time again, coming back to my breath, building capacity so finally I could see my thoughts are not realities. They're painful, they're challenging, they scare me, but they're not actually fundamentally real. I still need to work with them because I don't like being scared by them. They get annoying, so I have to work with them. But they're actually not real worlds that I'm living in. My fear about the future often has nothing to do with my actual future. I can make it my actual future if I believe in the thoughts, but sometimes it's just as easily like popping the bubble, coming back to my breath or my body, being here and now, and realizing, oh my God, what a relief. It's just thought. Now I can actually deal with the realities in front of me and not the complications that the thoughts are adding. So that's one example of how an insight can arise through this intimacy. And then there are many that come. So as we get to know ourselves, when we can actually sink into the flow of our experience, we stand to learn what's actually happening. 
And from that, learn to respond with more wisdom and more clarity. So there are many insights, and they can go in many directions. There are insights about the true power of love over hate. You can learn that. You can have it as a belief system. You can have it as a bumper sticker on your car. Or you can actually see that hate does not actually empower you. And working on forgiveness, working on love, is actually very empowering. So that can come through this practice. We don't want to end up with more beliefs. We want to end up with a better relationship to the realities. The yata bhutam vajanati, one who sees things as they are. And then there's a certain category of experiences that the Buddha talked a lot about. And he talked a lot about these three characteristics of our temporary experiences, the ones that we're flowing through, which defines almost all of our experience. Just a lot of temporary sights and sounds and smells and tastes and thoughts. It's the stream of our experience. Because we, <clears throat> we don't have the right relationship to the stream of our experience. We have a common relationship to it. And the common relationship is good enough to give us a generally uh, good enough life. But there are certain um, misperceptions that happen and from that, we actually get frustrated. We don't realize that we're not perceiving things clearly. And yet after this type of meditation, you can start to really see things more clearly. So the three characteristics that the Buddha often talked about are called anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Anicca being impermanence. Dukkha being the, the uh, unsatisfactory nature of temporary experiences. And anatta, the... Uh, the the changeable nature of ourselves, that we don't have a fixed self, that our self is an ongoing process. If I asked <clears throat> you all and you all reflected, you'd probably, yeah, yeah, okay, I kind of, I know things change. I'm wise enough to know that. And I was like, oh yeah, my, yeah, there's no like permanent satisfactions. It's just, that was a good weekend and I really enjoyed that movie and had a good day with my partner, but no. So some of these wisdoms we, we already align with, but we actually have unexamined um, beliefs around these that lead to our, um, our frustration with life. So the first one, uh, anicca. Everything you've ever experienced is undergoing, was undergoing and is undergoing uh, change. There actually are no static objects in the stream of our experience in the universe. Everything is undergoing change. It's either slow, medium, or fast, but nothing actually is um, built to not change. All the things that we've experienced in our daily lives, it's all changing experience. And yet we take a shortcut and we treat things as if they're the same and we get away with it. We get away with it until we don't. So this bell has been here for a while, it's a big bell. And it feels like it's the same bell that was here before. So when I walk in the room, I get relieved. Oh yeah, everything's like it was last time I was here. I don't have to learn anything new. It's kind of like it was last time. I'll just assume everything's the same as it was last time. And I get away with it. Here's this little earpiece, I learned how to use it. It's not different. I know how to use that, I know how to use this bell. Understand these clocks, understand how to turn the lights on and off. So if I say this is the same as it was the last time I was here, then I can just go off that old model. And that works until it doesn't. And it doesn't work until change actually occurs. And change is always occurring. But when I notice change, it actually can throw me because I'm relying on the fact that things don't change. I'm hoping I can get away with things being the same one day into the next one week into the next, one year into the next. Opening up to this experience of the changing nature of all the phenomena that we uh, experience through all of our sense doors all the time is actually um, a long process of constantly being intimate and everywhere you're intimate, what you end up feeling is change. So as we become intimate with our body, 
what we notice is that is a constantly fluctuating sea of sensations. When I don't look at my body all that closely, it feels like it's a kind of a static noun. Yes, this is my body. Noun, static. When I actually begin to feel into it, there's pulsing, there's heat, there's tingling, there's some uh, pleasure somewhere, there's some pain somewhere, neutral experiences. And if I really feel into it, it's actually constantly changing. So the relying, relying on this body to be static and something familiar begins to erode as I get more and more intimate with it. And what becomes familiar over time is that it's constantly changing. And so then I have to switch and become comfortable with the fact that this body is constantly changing. The reliability is in the fact that it's constantly changing, not the fact that it isn't changing. That becomes where I draw my comfort from. This body is constantly changing. Change by itself is one level of what we have to learn, the direct experience of change. But this word anicca comes with a second harder truth. This is part of the truth that pisses you off until it frees you. Is that it's not that just that things change, but things change from birth to death, from arising to passing. So anything that has a beginning has an ending. This is not just a belief system. This is something you feel into it and you explore. Is this true? Do things that have beginnings always have endings? What's your experience? If you're actually intimate with life, besides having a knee-jerk belief, what's the actual experience? And then when you get shown this experience, it pisses you off until you learn to mature your relationship to it and then it's actually freeing because then you're resting in the nature of how things are. So one tiny example, um, I just got a, my old cell phone finally died, got a new cell phone, and it was so beautiful compared to my old cell phone. No scratches, no dings, worked flawlessly, worked faster, loved it. Put it in my pocket, pulled it out one day, and it has a scratch right in the middle where my keys had gouged into it. And I was like, Oh, that first scratch. Why did that? I'm 25 years into my Buddhist practice. Why does that first scratch piss me off? Because I don't want it to change. I love the newness of it. I love the flawlessness of it. And I wanted that to be an eternal quality of my new phone. Yet I've owned many phones and none of them have been eternal. My direct experience with phones is that they are not eternal. This point in my life, I should know, phones are not eternal. In fact, I just gave up my favorite phone because it finally died on me. Yet, I buy a new phone and I'm bummed out by the first scratch. And then the second scratch. So this is how instinctual it is that we like newness and we don't like certain types of change. Same thing with my car. Every time my car gets a new ding on it, it's like, ah, new ding on it. Getting frustrated by it. Okay, that's cell phone, that's a car. My body. Look in the mirror, pretty much the same guy, pretty much the same guy. But I'm now watching, of all the hair, hairs are turning gray, one by one. I remember for the first time that I had a gray hair in one of my eyebrows, I was like, oh, really? Uh, you too? Ah, I was just getting used to the beard going gray, but eyebrows, really? You're going to go gray too? Yeah, I guess so. Why is that shocking to me? It's not that I don't have the facts. I got the facts. But there's this default, unconscious liking of things being like, I like them. This is, I got it set up. I like it this way. I don't want it to go different. And definitely not in this aging direction because aging is... Sometimes it brings good qualities like wisdom, but also it brings a sort of a loss of what we might be more attached to. You know, societal pressures on us, plus our own personal pressures, liking us, our bodies when they're younger. And then we suffer in the nature of things, in the true nature of things. Yet with training and with um, some wisdom, 
you can actually see, oh, this is natural. What if I rested in the nature of how things are? Things are like this. Do, making that transition is not easy, but as you do make that transition, as I've made that transition, one, I'm not as pissed off about the scratch on my cell phone, not as pissed off about the scratches on my car. I can catch up with the fact that my body's aging. I can see that it was my, uh, my wrong beliefs that had me frustrated that things were changing and changing this aging direction. And then I see it with my parents. And again, I've been at this for a while. I know change is coming. I worked in hospice for a year, so I know that at the end of life, people pass away. So I've been through that. But with my parents, it's a new level of watching them get older. And they're, they're not just getting grayer, they're actually starting to show some real physical wear and tear. And so where, did, where was I holding? I didn't know I was holding this this uh, unexamined prayer that they wouldn't grow old because it hurts to watch them grow old. And that's fine on one level. You know, it shows that I care, that it hurts when, I, when they grow older and they feel more physical pain. So I have empathy for them. But I also more quickly tune into, this is the nature of things, Temple. Temple, this is the nature of things. Work with your grief and then tune into this is how things are because you'll actually be able to love them and appreciate them and not take them for granted if you tune into the nature of the way things are. I got to work on a hospice ward and it was amazing to watch people who had been doing it for years and how tender they were and they would still cry when people died, but they were able to actually be there consciously while people were passing. And I got to do that over the months I was there. And it was very liberating very liberating to befriend this process that is quite natural. It's the nature. It's our nature. Doesn't mean that nature is broken. It's nature. It's how things are. Things that arise eventually pass away. If you're aligned with that, you don't suffer. You don't get so confused. This building had a beginning. This building will have an end. This building will not be here forever no matter how much you paint it and no matter how much you replace the rotting boards, there will come a time when this building will not be here. I bet the dinosaurs thought that they were permanent. When they were here, they ruled for hundreds of millions of years. They had, their game was top game. And mammals were like little tiny mice. They couldn't grow bigger than mice because they would get eaten. And the asteroids came, took them out. Now we're top game. Are we going to be top game forever? We had a beginning, we'll also have an end. That's shocking, that's a truth that first pisses you off. But if you breathe with it, you can actually come to terms with it. And then it actually, for me, it helps me celebrate what's actually happening versus some fantasy of what I hope will happen. That's an example of this first characteristic, Anicca. One who understands the reality as it is understanding that things change, and they change in this beginning to aging to falling apart direction. We mature our relationship to this truth and then find that there's a whole bunch of suffering that leaves our system when we actually make these alignments. And you make the alignment by actually becoming intimate with the aging process, that things fall apart. So the scratch in my phone, the ding on my car, the graying of my face, the aging of my parents, it's everywhere. There are all these invitations to become much more intimate with this truth. And then I go through my struggles around it, breathe, let go into the way things are, and then find that it's not just a sad story, it's actually a beautiful story. I don't have to make this truth a bad thing. If I relate to it in the right way, I actually find myself quite free and appreciative of life. The next characteristic after Anicca is this word dukkha. And dukkha gets used a lot. Um, it's probably, it's, uh, the translation many of us like the least is this word suffering, but it's the one that sort of has stuck in our, um, in our language. 
I find a, a higher, a more, a more sophisticated understanding of dukkha is that <clears throat> there's limited satisfaction in transient experiences. So the satisfaction can be quite high for certain experiences, and yet that satisfaction is temporary. There were times when I was younger, I really thought that if I could get certain experiences, I could then peg my satisfaction at that level, only to find that the satisfaction would wear off. And so I had to raise it again and hope, why does it keep wearing off? Why could I work that hard to be that happy? And then you can't stay there. Why does it keep wearing off? Well, one reason it keeps wearing off is due to anicca, that things arise and then pass. So you have to examine how much satisfaction are you asking of temporary experiences? How much satisfaction are you asking of lunch? It's a stream of temporary experiences, and you might spend the better part of the morning looking forward to lunch. Yet if you actually pay attention, lunch can only give you so much. I remember practicing and working with a lot of physical pain, and I was like, oh, I just can't wait till lunch, and then I get to take a break from this. And as I got more intimate with life, I wouldn't just eat and space out, I'd actually be present. And I'd realize lunch is okay, but it didn't give me what I was hoping for, which was a complete break, a complete vacation from whatever was going on in my body. It was just certain tastes on my tongue, and the cooks had done a great job, but it couldn't give me more than it could give me, which was a bunch of temporary experiences. This is called the dukkha nature of transient experiences. It doesn't mean that all experiences are bad. It doesn't mean that certain experiences aren't worth pursuing, but you have to hold them with wise perspective. They will be transient experiences, still worth having, but hold them as transient experiences. One of my uh, uh, better friends, well, two, two of my good friends, I realized that they have dukkha nature. They're really good friends, but no matter how much time I spend with them, they can't give me total satisfaction. They can give me temporary satisfaction. And at some point, we part ways. When we part ways, I then have to go on, and whatever we've just done begins to fade, and whatever is coming is my next experience. So these are peak experiences, good friends, good food, great sex, whatever, you, <laughs> whatever you're looking for, whatever is going to give you what you're hoping for, it will be a stream of temporary experiences. And then time will go on and those experiences will fade and new experiences will come. This is the dukkha nature of being in a world that's in constant change. Pleasures come and go. Pain also comes and goes. And there's no stopping the arising of pain. Again, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. I've now lived 47 years. <clears throat> so I have 47 years under my belt. Yet when I think of the next year and I plan it, I don't plan in having any pain. <laughs> what is that about? I am getting better at scheduling. I understand how a year works. But everything I actually plan in my future, um, some of it's scary, like public speaking, but I don't, and I can picture that going awkwardly, you know, and it, it hasn't so far, so, so far. <laughs> but <clears throat> I didn't plan on getting poison oak. It wasn't on my, like, oh yeah, Tuesday, poison oak. So it comes. I now know to roll with reality because it's the gap between what I want to be happening and what is happening, that creates a lot of stress. And rather than kick and fight and scream and complain to try to get reality to come my direction, I can actually get in line with reality and then see if I can steer it in a better direction. But it's better to kind of first drop into the way things are. Yes, I have poison oak. Yes, it is itchy. If you haven't had it yet, it's true what they say. It's itchy. <laughs> it's the way it is. It's the yata butam of poison oak. It is itchy. 
That's its nature, and it's the nature of this body that it will experience pain. You actually want a body that experiences pain. It's a fantasy to imagine it's pleasurable to have a body that doesn't experience pain. People who don't experience pain tend not to live very long. It's actually a healthy thing that your body experiences pain. But as much pain as we all experience in life, we don't plan on it, and we tend to be upset when it comes. Yet how novel is it to us to experience pain? It's not novel, and yet it still throws us. So there's a gap between the life we're living and the wisdom to live the life we're living, to open up, to mature our relationship to the fact that pain comes, pain goes, pleasure comes, pleasure goes, neutral experiences come, neutral experiences go. They come and go, they are anicca. They can't offer you refuge. Temporary experiences can't offer you the type of refuge that most of us are looking for the perfect relationship, the perfect job, the perfect car, the perfect house, hoping that your future is going to give you some type of refuge. And if it does give you refuge for months on end, you'll then think, oh, I've done it. I've finally gotten this perfect refuge, things just like I like them, only to find that it's also temporary experiences. I was very proud of myself when I graduated college and there was all this pressure to go on to grad school and I fought that pressure and I ended up in this little cabin on the shores of Puget Sound. And um, I would cut driftwood for heating the house. And I, I was staying there, I was working on the house. It was beautiful. I had this dog, it was the beautiful uh, public jazz station. I was learning to, to knit. I was knitting, crackling fire, dog at my feet, jazz playing. I was baking sourdough bread. Um, <clears throat> I was working four days a week in the youth shelter, so I had a beautiful sense of purpose in my life, but three days off to decompress. It was beautiful. One year, two years, I'd done it. I had escaped this sort of middle-class pressure to achieve high income and all the stress that comes with it. I'd done it. Then the people who actually owned the house wanted to move in. (laughs) So that refuge was no longer accessible, and I had to move on. At the time, that truth pissed me off. Now I'm glad that I had it for those two years. But at the time, I then had to go create another refuge, another place of refuge. This practice has shown me how to live at sea and how to find temporary refuges, just to kind of breathe a little bit. But then I'm I'm out at sea again. We're looking for permanent solutions. But what I've found, and what you can explore for yourself, is that the permanent solution is to stop looking for permanent solutions. The permanent solution, the one that can go with you everywhere, is one that stops looking for final solutions. One that can actually be nourished by temporary experiences. All all that I need in a day arises within that day. That's taken some training to be true. It was kind of fundamentally true, but there was still like a neediness that was still seeking and hungry. But this practice has shown me that I can be quite content with whatever the day has to offer, even if the day is full of poison oak and an aging body. It's fine. My, my contentment is as good as it's, as it's ever been, and it's more reliable because I stop asking more from reality than it can give me. That's the wise relationship to this, the dukkha nature of experience. I grew up in Rhode Island and we have this huge internal bay. It's a very small state and a huge, huge, huge internal bay. So there's a lot of um, ferries you can ride and a lot of sailing and uh, being on boats. And when you first get on a boat, it wobbles and you feel wobbly and you can't imagine that you could ever walk across a boat without holding on to things because it's so wobbly. It's because you're used to dry land, which is steady. So you step on a boat and it wobbles. And yet about an hour of being on a wobbly boat, you develop a way of balancing yourself even though nothing is stable. And you kind of expect nothing to be stable. By expecting nothing to be stable, you can make your way across the boat And then when you finally come back to dry land, you get on dry land and you can't balance yourself. 
because nothing's giving. You step on a rock and it doesn't sink below your feet. It kind of pushes back. And so you, they, sailors often look drunk when they get on dry land just because they're trying to make that transition. Relating to anicca and relating to dukkha, relating to the temporary satisfaction that comes by meeting experiences, it's like having sea legs in the nature of change. And you are developing that. You're developing it because at some point resisting it is exhausting. And you stop insisting that things give you final solutions. And you stop expecting things to be permanent. You learn to surf through the world. It's all fluid, it's all changeable. And from that you're less stressed. You're actually okay in the nature of change. You're okay in the fact that temporary, you know, beautiful experiences come and go. And there's less clinging to it, less despair when things change, when things fall apart, and you're on to whatever is next. That's an important place to point our attention, to mature our relationship to life. Why the Buddha wanted us to look in this direction, because we end up suffering so much less. And if we actually perfect our relationship to the nature of change, if we perfect our relationship to the fact that no temporary experience can give you full satisfaction. When you perfect your relationship to these two truths, you can actually draw a tremendous amount of security and well-being in the fact that all these experiences are transient. That takes time. It takes time and intimacy and training to let go of your old way of being so that you actually are more and more able to drop into this is how things are now. There is calm now. Finally, I finally am getting it. I finally understand how to do meditation because I'm feeling calm. This is great. Then we begin to cling. We begin to hold on to it. And then the next sitting comes and there's no calm. What am I doing wrong? Not doing anything wrong. Calm came, calm left. <laughs> That's the nature of calm. It will probably come again, hopefully it'll come again, but it comes and it goes. Sadness came, oh no, sadness came. I'm now sad. I have to leave the retreat, I'm now sad. No, sad came. Wait, sad will go. Clarity, oh, I love clarity, oh, it's so clear. There's so many times, it's just funny. I, I spent a year as a monk in Burma. I was like, God, I finally got it. A child could do this. It is so clear. It is so clear. You just don't cling. Why would I ever cling again next day? Oh, if I could just get back there. <laughs> if I could just get back there. Stop clinging. You get back there. Stop clinging. You can get back there if you just stop clinging. But that's clinging. Okay. I don't want it. God damn it. Oh, where is it going to be? And over time... I was just, at some point, the suffering of clinging is exhausting. And then you relax, and then you find you actually can be in flow with a greater range of experiences. So at first that truth piths you off, and then it sets you free. The third characteristic of anatta, <coughs> when you take anicca, the fact that all things change, and you become very intimate with what your self-experience is. It's unnerving the fact that we are all also fluid beings. We are not static beings. We are not static beings. We're constantly in flux. That's unnerving. Who do I know when I'm going to give a talk like this? Who's going to show up? Which version of me is going to show up? Can I control that? I drink enough coffee and get it just right and plan the right joke. Can I get the, the guy I want to show up to show up? If I tried to do that, no way. That guy would not show up. An anxious, controlling uh, guy would show up. The best way is just to have faith. Who's going to show up? The guy who shows up. You're getting the guy who showed up tonight. <laughs> That's who showed up. <clears throat> it's because I have a more fluid relationship to myself. And I'm okay with a greater range of who shows up. I'm more familiar with my many parts. And some of them wouldn't give a good talk. 
But if they showed up, that would be the reality. That would be the nature of things. If some of those parts of me showed up, they probably wouldn't give the best talk. But fighting them and trying to control definitely would prevent the better parts of me showing up. You definitely don't want me trying to over-control myself. I've done it before and it doesn't produce a good outcome. So relaxing into who you are and the fact that you're also constantly in flux. This is the fluid nature of being. Relaxing into the fluid nature of being takes a tremendous amount of faith that your fluid being will be will respond well to the environment you're in. Yet here again, it's a little bit unnerving, but when you relax into the fluid nature of being, you very quickly attune to your environment. You can't control it, but it actually performs much better. The fluid being that you are performs much better when you're relaxed, when you know all the parts of you so that as you're fluidly going through life and you're a part of the fluid process, you have a less stress, less controlled, less anxious relationship to your environment and you're more responsive to it. So if you had a bucket of water and a bucket of frozen water, of ice, and you put anything on the surface of the water, it accepts everything. You know, you can put diamonds, you could put uh, broken glass, you could put a sandwich, <laughs> anything you want. The water. water would just take its shape. You could take that water, pour it into another container, it's a fat, long, wide, into a skinny one, take it. The water can do anything, it just keeps changing. The fluid nature of being is really lovely. It just takes a lot of faith to trust that fluid being. And a lot of familiarity, that's what ends up building the faith, is more and more familiarity with more aspects of who you are. So when your fear comes, really take it, don't fight it. Get to know what fear is like in you. When anger comes, try not to fight it. Get to know what anger's like. You wanna stop the actions of anger, but you wanna actually know what anger is like inside of you. You wanna know what happiness is and calm. All these many parts of you, and they just keep showing up. They just keep showing up. As you relax into that process, you get a being that's much more attuned to the environment that it finds itself in, and that being can change as the circumstances change. So if suddenly there were a crisis here, it'd be very easy for me to stop this talk and deal with the crisis, you know, because I'm in more of my fluid being. If I was my controlled being and somebody had a hard time, I would have a hard time adapting because I was trying to control things. Not trying to control things actually makes me more adaptive and there's much less stress in it, but it takes faith. And the faith comes from trusting and knowing yourself in all your various forms and knowing that you can't command a certain part of you to show up at a certain time. You can only invite it and then be grateful for whichever part of you does show up. That's the part of you that showed up. Those are the conditions. Get to know yourself. And with a quote from one of my heroes, maybe many of our heroes, Albert Einstein. A beautiful, beautiful physicist and his ability to imagine and dream, but also an amazing humanitarian. And that part of him may not be as obvious as what he brought to uh, the understanding of space and time and his, his ability to, um, to imagine differently and more accurately. A human being is a part of a whole called by us, universe, a part limited in time and space. We experience ourselves, our thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of our consciousness. The striving to free ourselves from this delusion is the one issue of true religion. Not to nourish this delusion, but to try to overcome it, is the way to reach the attainable measure of peace of mind. So we have 
many types of practices that we're doing here, calming ourselves, gathering ourselves, resting in how things are, and then deepening our ability to align with the way things are, to be less troubled by the way things are, so we can stay with intimacy with whatever is arising, begins to open up a new relationship to life, resting in the nature of things, steering from within the nature of things, as opposed to being upset by the nature of things. That's what we're practicing here, and hopefully it's what you're experiencing. And it tends to be the outcome, so even if you're not trying, it tends to be the outcome of how we go about these retreats. So I've, I see it in all, you all. I've seen it in many people practicing here, so I know it's happening. So let's continue. Let's just sit for a moment and let the words be of their nature and dissipate. Relaxing intimately into the nature of changing experiences seeing if we can find contentment in the nature of change, one moment after another. And now you're invited to keep practicing into the evening. So, Please enjoy your journey. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.